Hello, friends. Welcome to the show. Greg Kogel, your host on Stand of Reason. <clears throat> Some talk show hosts don't like calling it a show. and not a show. It's a program. Anyway, it is what it is. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, a couple of days ago, I, I had an interview with some uh, fellas at, uh, let's see, what's, I think it's called uh, Rock Solid Apologetics. Actually, it's Rock Solid Apologia. Had a great time with them. It's kind of a startup venture. Um, and I always like to encourage people in those things. Uh, they said, well, we don't have a very big audience. But they've actually had Oz Guinness on and Jay Warner Wallace on and uh, Paul Copan on. So they're getting high-octane talent, you know, for their small broadcast. I hope their footprint um, gets larger. Uh, by the way, it's uh, they bill it as the only apologetic satire podcast. But I wasn't uh, doing satire. I was just doing content, you know, answering questions. And it was a really great interview. I just want to mention them to you because you may want to check them out. Rock Solid Epilogia. Okay, and uh, and and see what they have. Uh, my my interview will be posted there in sometime in the future. I just did it like two days ago or something. Wait, what's today? I think I did it yesterday. Oh, today is I don't know what today is for you, but today is Tuesday for me. <laughs> All right, November twenty first. So it's going to be Friday going out, and they might be listening till later. But anyway, I just had I just had that interview yesterday, and I I really had a great time. And I thought it was very well prosecuted. You know, I do a lot of interviews for Street Smarts and other things as well. And uh, sometimes the the um, the interviewers are are skilled and organized and ask good questions. And other times, not so much. It's all right. I'm glad to help out where I can. Uh, but this was particularly well organized. And uh, what was the way the the interview was set up was um, the um, the interviewer. I'm trying to remember his first name. I get lost in that because I have so many to keep track of. But anyway, he was uh, he laid out a, a, a dynamic because he goes to a secular school and he encounters a lot of uh, challenges in the secular school and he's using a tactical approach. But he wanted to know specifically how I would deal with certain questions using the tactical approach. And that is the substance of street smarts because in street smarts we're dealing with particular issues and employing the game plan, especially at the third step of the game plan, um, to make our point, which is the third step, using questions to make a point. And um, here's one of the things he offered me, and I thought I'd just talk about some of these things on the air might be helpful to you. Uh, here's a scenario, and I think actually this happened to him, the fellow that was doing my interview. And uh, he said, over the summer I was in a science class and I got into a discussion with the professor about the existence of God, and he claimed that there was absolutely no evidence for God and that intelligent design was pseudoscience. And then where should the Christian student go at that point in the discussion? Now, what's interesting is I, I actually deal with that objection in Street Smarts. There's absolutely no evidence for God. And as he told me his own interaction— he was following the game plan perfectly. Now, just because you follow the game plan perfectly doesn't mean you're going to make a difference because there's no silver bullet. We do the best that we can with the tools that we have, being gracious in the process, and we let God worry about the results. And the more tools that we get in our tool bag, so to speak, the more that God has to work with. And I had mentioned in a prior 
broadcast that the relationship between God's effort, God's acting, and our effort are, is is a unusual one. I'm not even sure completely how to characterize it. When we talk about the doctrine of inspiration, we know that human beings were involved writing the Bible, and we 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 have a, a testimony from the Scripture itself that God is involved in the process, and somehow the two are united to produce the end by human effort that God intends. And the classic way that theologians describe this is concursive operation. Concursive operation. Both operating together to accomplish a particular end. But the end in this case is the is the production of divinely inspired Scripture that is inerrant. Now, how does God guarantee that? I don't know. Just like I don't know what what the interface of my role and God's role looks like to bring someone to Christ, I just know what my role is. Is to and this is what I emphasize: is let's be faithful to be uh, to provide the most gracious and the most attractive and the most faithful, truthful, and the most persuasive case we can for Christ, and then we let God worry about the rest. All right. And so when it comes to this particular thing, I don't know what's going to change the professor's mind, but there is something we could say about his comments. When he says that intelligent design was pseudoscience, that needs clarification. What do you mean by pseudoscience, like false science? Like astrology would be a pseudoscience, for example, probably in many people's minds. Um, it has no scientific foundation. But intelligent design, he's putting in the same category as astrology versus astronomy, all right? So why would that be pseudoscience? Now, that's going to require the professor to give a characterization of what science is, such that it excludes intelligent design. And if it excludes it, then intelligent design isn't science, doesn't satisfy the requirements. Instead, it's pseudoscience. Now, I'll tell you the answer that's the only answer he could give. That science—I mean, he may give other answers, but here's the only one that's kind of um, really goes to the heart of the issue. Science is an enterprise that uses naturalistic explanations to make sense of phenomena we see. You have to have a cause-and-effect relation within the natural world and natural laws. That's the way he's defined it. If you bring God into it, now you're not appealing directly to natural laws, you're appealing to a designer, an agent, and supernatural agent, no less. That's not science. That's pseudoscience. I think that's the best kind of answer he could give. That's the, the most compelling answer. But I just want to point out something, and many of you already know this. This has nothing to do with science, what he just said. That's a, a philosophy that is a metaphysical philosophy imposed on the methodology of science. So the question here is, does he want the right answers, or does he want the right kind of answers? Does he want the right answers? What caused this to happen? Or does he want the right kind of answers? Now, if you go to forensic pathology, you have a good, a, 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 a good, um, a useful paradigm to see what I'm talking about. Because when you have a dead man, what you're, what what 
detectives are trying to find out if he died of natural causes or died of foul play. Now, natural causes would be the natural order of things, the events that just cascade one after another that result in the death. Maybe it's heart attack, or maybe it's uh, something that he ate by accident that was poisonous or something like that. There's no other agency involved. But if the guy's got, if he's, you know, he's a, a stiff and he's got five bullet holes in his chest and a big knife in his back, that's a pretty good indication that this one died of foul play. Of course, you still need to have a coroner's assessment to find out. But nevertheless, this is this. There, so you can use science to identify if there is agency, an agent, a someone acting as opposed to a non-agency, uh, I should say, uh, the cause will just be an event causation, just things happen, natural events running their course. So there's nothing obscene about that. Even archaeology has the same thing. Here's a, here's a, bust, a chipped up piece of stone. Was it chipped by an intelligent agent, or do these chips reflect just a random, uh, a, a random series of events that made the rock look chipped in a kind of a way? Well, if it's chipped to make a thing look like a perfect scraper, you know, we used to go in the fields in Illinois when I was a kid, and there was one field that just had a lot of arrowheads and scrapers and stuff like that because there must have been a Native American settlement there, and they plow up the dirt, and these things come up. Well, you can see that there was agency involved in this. So that's also science. So why would intelligent design be pseudoscience when you allow agency as a factor in other types of science? Now, I know the difference. The agency in the other kinds of science, say forensic pathology or um, say archaeology, they only refer to a a human agent or a, a physical agent. When you took, talk about intelligent design, you're bringing in a supernatural, outside of the natural realm type agent. But sometimes that's the best explanation. Sometimes that's the only explanation. You open up in a DNA triple helix and you've got these words in there. You have four letters that spell different words that, biologically speaking, are meaningful. They make things. They make engines inside the cell. And uh, most most of who follow these things are pretty clear on what this is. Stephen uh, Meyer writes it, it lucidly about these things, written a number of books that help you to see, wait, where do you get information in the cell? Well, information comes from a programmer. We know that. That's our regular experience. Why is it that you call appeal to a programmer when we have information like that, pseudoscience. It's because of a philosophy. It's not because of science working on its own, the methodology of it. That's the imposition of a philosophy that says no to that kind of thing. So that's where I'd be going with that discussion. Um, and uh, let's see, what was the other thing you said there? Oh, there was no, there was absolutely no evidence and apparently my my interviewer referred to evidence of intelligent design in the natural realm biological or geological whatever and or maybe physics and cosmological and that's when the uh professor objected that that's pseudoscience all right so um it's not pseudoscience it is it is uh 
it's an attempt to answer the question, what actually happened, without restricting the answers by imposing a philosophic screen over that. Um, but the question about God's, the evidence for God, you know, one of the things that the questioner asked, I, the guy was interviewing me, and I really feel bad, I can't remember the name right now. I'm thinking maybe it'll come to mind, but that's all right. He's a real sweet guy, and he did a great job. Um, one of the things he asked the professor is, what 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 have you read? <laughs> what have you read in support of God's existence? And the answer was nothing, as I recall. Well, if you've read nothing about arguments in favor of God's existence, how can you say there's no evidence if you haven't availed yourself of the alleged evidence that's available? You know, just look at... I, I have a, a, a Copleston's, what, 10-volume set of uh, the history of philosophy. Uh, a lot of smart guys who are surveyed in that 10-volume set. You know that from the time of Christ up until the Enlightenment, maybe the 18th or 19th century, or in, right in there, every single philosopher of note was a biblical theist. These are smart guys. So to claim that there is no evidence whatsoever of any kind for the existence of God seems rather bold in light of that. Of course, you have to deal with the individuals, the arguments themselves, and show how they've gone south. But evidence, a thing can be evidence even though it's not ultimately conclusive, ultimately decisive, okay? Um, when a person becomes a person of interest regarding a crime, okay, it's because there is evidence that points to that individual as being the perpetrator. It doesn't mean the evidence at that point has risen to the level of proof, but at least it points to that person. Now, it could be that that person that some of the evidence points to has an airtight alibi. Then we realize, though there's evidence, it's not enough to to convict because there's other evidence to the contrary that overwhelms it. But you would never say, there's no evidence. None. But that's what the professor did. And of course, that's the point on which he needs to be challenged. Really? None? All of these pretty smart philosophers laying out arguments? Well, those arguments don't work. Well, that's actually saying another thing than what you just said. To say that the evidence isn't adequate is different from saying there's no evidence. So are you willing to say there's evidence and that's adequate? What What is your view? Anyway, we want to use questions to work through that. So that was a fun uh, interview I had, and uh, it'll be posted on social media, the organization, and we cover lots of issues. We talked for, I think, an hour and 15 minutes or something. We planned to go 45, and time flew by because we were all having such a good time. But the... Uh, once again, the apologetics organization is um, uh, Rock Solid Apologia. Is that right? Rock Solid Apologia podcast. So, and I did have a great time with those guys, and I wish them the best. Um, let's take a quick break, and I'll get my uh, my phone calls in order here from our open mic calls, and uh, we'll cover some of those questions. Greg Kokel here for Standard Reason. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR outpost. 
STR Outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost, or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. If an LGBT person asks you to accommodate the request and what they're asking you to do violates your conscience, should you go along? Find out in the most recent episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schleeman. Look for it on iTunes, Spotify, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. Hey friends, would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. open my calls and uh, of course this is when we have questioners that call in either to the website or to the phone number that we have um, and record their question uh, you can go to the homepage at podcasts and on the live podcast drop down and follow the prompts there or you can simply dial 857 dial str 8573425787 and leave your question, and we've got lots of pages of them, but I'm work through them. Eventually, keep moving. So here's one from uh, Mark Johnson, um, and l- let's hear what Mark has to say. Hi, Greg. Mark Johnson. Greg, I have a question. Um, I'm, I'm thinking ahead. I'm going to be having some conversation, and uh, it's about uh, pro-life uh, arguing for the pro-life position. Um, it's going to be with my pastor, I I think. Um, well, like using uh, well, what I like is I like uh, making uh, abortion unthinkable, mm-hmm. the training that you guys put out. And um, where I think I'm going to get pushback is they get they get a little nervous uh well in the past maybe 15 years ago or something i was talking about some pro-life stuff and they were they were like uh like oh there's people sitting out in the sanctuary that have had abortions and we can't talk about that because they'll get their feelings hurt or basically that's how i thought they were that's what i thought they were talking about Mm -hmm. but here's the here's my Here's my question. Um, like, say I'm, I'm going to use 
uh, I'm going to push the uh, making abortion unthinkable thing. Mm-hmm. I'd like to use that. But how do I make a biblical argument that it is okay to make an argument to help people see, you know, you know, I make a biblical argument to use that material mm-hmm. in that actually going out and talking to people is uh, biblically a biblically sound, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, yeah, that's my question, and I'd just like to be armed with a little bit of scripture, you know, just to help him see that this is okay. Yeah. Um, so anyways, yeah, if you can get this question on, I would appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for all you do. Have oh, a great day. So Bye. welcome. Yeah, so welcome, uh, Mark. And I, I'm a little bit mystified right now um, because what is it that pastors are doing when they preach from the Word? if they aren't preaching the passages that say, essentially, stop sinning. (laughs) This is the will of God for your life, even your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's 1 Thess 4. If If you are involved in sexual immorality, you're sinning. Stop it. Oh, well, that hurts my feelings. So what? I and mean, what does that have to do with anything? It, it does, if it makes you feel bad, it ought to make you feel bad. If you are doing wrong, stop doing wrong. The, the, the text is filled with examples of the apostles and even Jesus saying, essentially, go and sin no more. This thing you're doing, stop doing it. This isn't right. Uh, it strikes me as so strange that a pastor would say, um, you know, we're not going to preach against abortion because there might be some people who've had abortions here. Now, I realize that there may be people who had abortions that now are sad about the choice they made and they think they made the wrong choice. Okay, that's great. Well, let's look at There's people who had abortions that feel they made the wrong choice and people who had abortions that don't feel they made the wrong choice, okay? If you have people who had abortions that feel they made the wrong choice, and you preach about how abortion is bad, then they feel bad, which is an opportunity for them to seek forgiveness, to go before the Lord. And if you have other people who don't feel bad about having their abortions, then you preach so that in a way that helps them to see that it's wrong to do that. And that you ought to feel bad if you don't feel bad. And if you don't feel bad, that's not a good sign. Because there's not going to be forgiveness for people who are unrepentant. I mean, that kind of goes with the, the package right there. Right? So, so uh, or there may be people there that never had an abortion. Well, you want to encourage them not to ever think of that, or helping with it, or aiding with it, if it's bad. This is the work of sanctification in the New Testament, addressing sin and telling people to stop doing it. <laughs> I don't. Why is that? I don't get what's so hard about that, unless he's not convinced that abortion is a sin. If he had people in his congregation that owned slaves, 
would he speak up against that? If he had people that were didn't own slaves but a racist, would he think it legitimate to speak up against that? In this case, we have people in the congregation that either have killed other human beings through abortion or may be killing, may kill other human beings through abortion. And I don't mean just the women who are carrying the child, but the men who abet that process or any other family members who abet that. They hold responsibility for it as well. So what do we do? We just, people are doing terribly sinful things or have done terribly sinful things, but we're not going to say anything because they might feel bad. You see what I'm saying? Notice, by the way, all I'm doing in this particular case, and this is tactically, is I'm just reading back to, in this case, the pastor, his own rationale, but taking the spin off of it. Let me see if I understand you right. You're saying if people, if there are human beings who murder other innocent children, then we shouldn't say anything that might make them feel bad about that. Now, it might be that your pastor does not think that abortion is an uh, is a unjustified act of taking another human life. That would be what murder is. Unjustified killing. And if that's the case, all you have to do is go back to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. And there you have the birth narratives, of course. And you have G- Mary, who has just... Uh, uh, received word from the angel Gabriel that she will bear a son as a virgin who will be the Lord and the Messiah. And when she's wondering how could that be, he says, well, even your cousin Elizabeth is now in the sixth month. That's the second end of the second trimester, if you use modern ways of characterizing that. And Mary is now just pregnant. But when Mary goes to meet Mar- um, Elizabeth, Elizabeth says, How is it that the mother of my Lord, not the one who would be the mother of her Lord, but the mother, currently is the mother of my Lord, should come to me? Because from the moment I heard your voice, the baby, end of the second trimester fetus, the baby leapt in my womb with joy. And that was because he was filled with the Holy Spirit, just the way his father Zacharias had predicted. But notice that this one in her womb, who is John the Baptist, the very same John the Baptist that would be born in three months and named John, that child in her womb is filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? He jumps with joy because he is in the presence of Jesus the Lord. Remember the mother of my Lord? He wasn't named Jesus yet. Maybe he will call himself his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Where did that first come in? I don't know. Maybe they knew in advance they were going to call him Jesus. Nevertheless, it was him. So if abortion is okay, then aborting those two children featured in Luke chapter 1 would have killed John the Baptist and Jesus themselves without proper justification. I mean, I don't know a clearer biblical passage than that one. 
that shows that 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 abortion kills a, an image bearer, which, by the way, is a capital crime according to Genesis nine verse six. Whoever sheds man blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God God created man. All right, so pretty straightforward, right? So I. I this is one of those occasions where I'm a little bit dumbfounded about the reluctance of the pastor. Now, when you go to the pastor, Mark, you want to go with your hat in your hand. You want to go humbly to him, and you want to ask him a series of questions regarding this. Okay? So um, why is it more important to protect someone's feelings than it is to give an argument that might persuade other people not to kill their babies? And by the way, in this circumstance, if you're hurting somebody's feelings, it might be they haven't dealt with this themselves before God, and they need need to do that. And and whenever I give talks about abortion, in fact, in the material that you mentioned, Mark, about making abortion unthinkable, the art of pro-life persuasion, we make it clear that a message of forgiveness for sins needs to be part of your communication about the pro-life message. And we do this all the time. Whenever we make a presentation, we make this clear. Forgiveness is there. There's no unforgivable sin in that sense. Certainly not this one. Yes, that can be forgiven. So maybe that's what the people need, is to face this sin instead of ignoring, ignoring it and then deal with God. Regarding that sin, I'm thinking of First Corinthians chapter five, by the way, um, because here was a situation where Paul uh, refers to something going on in, in the congregation that's borderline unspeakable in Corinth, and they haven't done anything about it. Okay, so let me read what he says, chapter five of First Corinthians, starting in verse one. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. That means that, there's, that the son is sexually involved with his father's wife. Maybe his own natural mother, maybe a stepmother. It doesn't say, but it just says that. And then verse 2, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Now, he goes in to an issue of, of church discipline about this, but what I want you to catch, though, is the nature of Paul's exhortation. There is sin in your midst, and you don't even address it. You are you become arrogant, and uh, let me just see a marginal reference there, puffed up. And I think I think the sense is that look at how tolerant we are. We don't hurt people's feelings on this kind of stuff. We're really understanding. We're very tolerant. We're very accepting. And Paul said, "What are you accepting this for? This is worse than the, than the Gentiles, the non-Christians." Is what he's referring to. This is terrible. Deal with it. And he goes on explaining how to deal with it. But but notice what he does. He I, he singles out 
uh, an individual who is sinning, part of the local body, and he's shaming the Corinthians for not dealing with it. Now, very minimally, then, application of this to the circumstance you're facing, Mark, is that the pastor should at least address this, that kind of sin as sin. We're not looking to publicly shame people. We're looking to give them an opportunity to acknowledge the sin that they committed and be cleansed from it. And that's really part of what Paul talks about there in 1 Corinthians 5. It's a motivation to be cleansed, motivation to move the person. There's discipline so that the person is moved to repentance. All right? So uh, I, man, I hope that helps, Mark. But I, I just don't—if you want a biblical argument, here's one, 1 Corinthians 5. But the New Testament is filled with biblical examples of the disciples um, chastising those who are sinning, and they're told, telling them, don't stop that. <laughs> or the way Jesus put it, go and sin no more. And uh, there's no exception for people whose feelings are hurt because they've done something egregiously immoral. And and it's being identified as such from the from a teacher or from the pulpit. All right. Okay, that's Mark Johnson. Let's see. Where should we go next? I have um and or to be their best out there. Uh, oh, okay. Uh let's um let's do um Michael Moreno. He's top of the list of people who called in a long time ago. <laughs> So we'll do this. Michael Moreno. Greg, I was wondering, is there a way to search your past articles online? I was trying to find a translation that you use and which one you consider the best currently out on the market. Mm. It would be great to be able to search your articles. Okay. Is that it? Okay, there we go. Um, it's easy to search. There's a little search box in the upper right-hand corner with a one of the little, like, Q-looking things. Yeah. What do they call that, Amy? Oh, it's a magnifying glass that looks like a Q thing. And that's just on almost all your apps and whatever you software it's that kind of feature. It's got that little thing there. So we have one of those. Just type in your information, Bible translations or whatever. And uh, it's a pretty powerful app, I think. And so it should find uh, what you're, you should be able to find what you're looking at But I'll, for. But I'll tell you what my own view is. There are actually three types of translations. There is uh, There are translations called a, a strict correspondence another type of translation called a dynamic equivalence, and another type of translation is called a free translation or a paraphrase, all right? Now, the Living Bible is like a free translation. In other words, they don't stay really tight to the beating. They kind of make it more pleasant and readable and put in jargon that might be a part of the vernacular of the common culture that is reading this book. And so the the Living Bible came out uh, about actually during the Jesus movement, I think, 
or um, Good News for Modern Man, and these are all free translations or paraphrases. You never want to do study with a paraphrase. It's not precise enough. But it will give you a little sense of the flow of the ideas and the flow of the history or something like that. So that's okay as long as you understand its limitations. Then there are the, the remaining two are, are much more tight translations, um, but they differ in their precision. So a strict correspondence is one that's trying to stick as closely as possible to the original wording, or words or phrases that carry the original meaning as closely as possible. Sometimes phrases in the uh, the New Testament or the Old, in the originals, don't don't uh, translate well. And so there's got to be a little latitude that's taken by the translator so it even makes sense to us, okay? Now, in a dynamic equivalence, they take even more liberties, all right? So to give you an example, I would say the New American Standard, which is the Bible that I use, that was my first translation. It's a good translation. I stick with it. No sense changing. And by the way, I do encourage people, if you're going to get serious about reading and studying the Bible, find a quality translation, and I prefer a strict correspondence. The ESV might be another example of that, very popular right now. And, and then stick with it the rest of your life. And the reason is, is you'll keep getting the same passage with the same wording, and it's easier for you to remember the passages. They don't keep changing the wording. Okay, you memorize the Lord's Prayer in one translation, and you go to another translation, a bunch of the words are different. Now, the basic meaning is the same, but maybe they chose a couple of different words, and then it just is hard to recite and what you memorized because of the changes. So, um, dynamic equivalence is going to be like a new American, the, the new, the NIV, the new international version. And this is where the translators are thinking, well, there's some hard concepts in here, and we're going to try to make it more reader accessible by giving you a little more sense of what we think it means. And so it's it's going to be what they call dynamic equivalence. I hope I'm getting my terms right here, but I'm certainly I'm getting my descriptions right. I'll give you one example. In the 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 word sarx in Greek is the word for flesh. Now the word flesh could mean two different things in the New Testament. It could be the fallen human nature. It could also mean um it also could mean the, uh, the, the, the our natural bodies. Just like Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. You didn't get this on your own. Or when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, but uh, flesh, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. You, you, you can't go to heaven with the physical body you own right now. That's what he's talking about. But... Uh, other times the word flesh is referring to the sinful principle in our fallen nature. So it says, who walk by the, who do not walk by the flesh, but walk by the Spirit. Anybody who's in the flesh cannot please God. It's impossible for him to do so. But you're not in the flesh if the Spirit of God dwells within you. That's Paul talking in Romans 8. And there he's using the word flesh as the fallen human nature, okay? Sarx is the Greek word in both cases, but um, it, the context is going uh, 
is going to determine what kind of flesh is in view. The New American Standard translates sarks as flesh. And then you have to decide which flesh is being referred to when you look at the context. Is it the, the natural human body, or is it the fallen nature? Okay, but you can make that discernment by looking at the context. The NIV will sometimes make that decision for you. And they'll say fallen nature or your human body or something like that for these various uses of sarks. And I don't think they always get it right. So I th- I'd rather just let the text speak in a very rigid way, so to speak, using the meanings of the words, and then I'll adapt myself. Now, I actually don't think the numeric standard is that rigid. I think it's a I think it's a great translation, and I think to to my ears it reads really nicely. Now maybe to other people's ears it seems kind of wooden, but I'd rather have a wooden translation that's more precise than have a dynamic equivalent that is less precise. I can't tell you every single translation of the Bible what column they fall in because I don't know that much, and frankly I haven't concerned myself that much with it because I got the New American Standard, and I'm happy with it. The NIV came out since I started as a Christian, and you know I was concerned by some of the things there. It reads a little easier, but uh, I was concerned about the precision. Uh, the ESV since then has come out as a more of a strict correspondence, and uh, but still chooses some different wording. And so you know you have to pick for yourself. But that's my take on how these cash out. You can find, um, there's a book called Scribes in Scripture, is that it, that I read book? I think that's it. I've been reading it. And I think it has a whole section on translations, and not just on the growth of the Bible, but the translation of the Bible. And so you might check that out. Hope that helps. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back with our final calls. Have you seen our brand new website? Stop by str.org and enjoy a fresh, clean layout with all the same great content. The new Standard Reason website was designed with you in mind. It has an easier-than-ever navigation and a crisp, simple layout so you can find all the sound analysis and careful commentary that you've come to expect from us. Browse new features that make finding your favorite resources easier than ever. As always, it's our goal to equip you, our fellow Christians, with a confidence, clear thinking, and courage you need for every encounter you have as a Christian ambassador. Our new website is just one way we're fulfilling that goal allowing you to access the resources you need in a new and improved way. So visit str.org and keep coming back to discover new podcasts, articles, and videos each and every day. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. 
In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. Friends, uh, Greg Kokel here, back with you on the show, and uh, we got Ramey from Indiana. Let's see if my button works. It didn't work, Amos. Push my button there for him. Thank you, Ramey. Welcome to the show. Hello, Greg. How are you? Okay. How about you? I'm doing fine. Good. Um, I just want to say, I'm my wife and I are strategic partners. Oh. We have been for a while, ever since we went on a cruise with you all uh, way back when. Um, do, and, uh, do you have a brother that lives up in um, Fra- Fargo? That's right. Oh, yes. I, well, I saw the name, and I recognized the name as the same name as that, you know, you, <laughs> who I've met yeah. before. But I um, but I saw your brother um, in Minneapolis at uh, the re- the uh, reality conference there. And, uh, right, yeah. I, and I, I asked if there were any more family members, and they said, no, we're kind of spread out now. But uh, it's nice to hear from yeah. you, Ramey. Thank you. Well, uh, I'm also an outpost leader here in Indiana. Wow, that's uh, great. And I teach at a Christian college here, and uh, one of my out- two outpost groups is with the college students at my church here. Mm-hmm. So in this group, we've been going through the STRU courses and uh, are in the middle of the evaluating worldviews with Robbie and... Um, Talking about the Christian theism worldview, uh-huh. and of course that holds that people are specially created, usually understood as being made in the image of God. Right. So, um, and that's usually understood to mean that we're personal beings like God, and therefore we have the ability to reason, uh, including not just reason, but um, I guess the classical definition of, per- of personal involves intellect, will, and emotion, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the students was pushing back on that idea of intelligence being part of the image of God, and that whether that can even be found in Scripture uh, and supported from Scripture, mainly because um, his concern was that that definition might exclude people who have intellectual disabilities. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and he also said that one of our college professors here also holds that view that the image of God is not necessarily about having intelligence or intellect, but it's more about whether we're reflecting Christ likeness. So, my question really is what is the image of God as it's described in Scripture, and is there support for this ability to reason as being part of our likeness with God? Mm-hmm. Well, this is a very important question, and there's actually some debate on this. In fact, I was at uh, San Antonio a week and a half ago, or this time last week, for ETS, Evangelical Theological Society Conference, and there was a discussion about 
with some very notable individuals, William Lane Craig, Josh Swamidas, um, Fazrana, and some others, about the historical Adam. And they all held that the image of God in man was a feature of true human beings, and uh, yet there was some debate of exactly what that entailed. Different people have different ideas. And there's no place in the Bible that I know of that explicitly says what the image of God in man is. What it, we can, I think we can do some work inductively to learn as we go into the text and look, um, that helps us to understand what's entailed there. Because the image of God in man is a unique quality. No other creature has that, as far as we know. Certainly no, none in the animal kingdom. I mean, there might be a question of whether angels have the image of God or not, in the sense that we're talking about it. <clears throat> what we we do know fairly clearly is in chapter 9, verse 6 of, of Genesis, and Genesis 1 says that in the image of God, God created man, and he's speaking of men and women there collectively. But uh, in Genesis 9, 6, it says, if man sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed for in the image of God, God created man. And what this tells us minimally is that the image of God is the is is the the feature of human beings that informs our moral obligations towards each other. All right. Such if you destroy an image bearer, then you as an image bearer need to be destroyed, and that's the appropriate punishment. So destroying an image bearer is a big deal, and there you see that moral. Um, issue being played out there in that command, which which legitimizes capital punishment. And capital punishment is a, a punishment that you see in the Mosaic Law for more than just murder. But um, we learn from Genesis 9-6 that there is a moral element and a moral responsibility that human beings who are made the image of God have, okay? That's pretty clear from that passage. I think that the the other way that we can go is we look at the kinds of things that seem to be unique about human beings and are also characteristics of God. And that seems like an inductive way of trying to populate the list of what are the features uh, of the image of God in man. Certainly a moral nature. That would be absolute. It's very clear to me from the Genesis 9 passage and uh, and just just reflecting, human beings are unique in having a general more a genuine moral nature. Not other creatures, but human beings. Okay, and so then the question becomes, um, uh, what else? In what other ways does it seem that human beings are uniquely like God? And oftentimes it was a, ra- a rational nature is put in there. Right? There's maybe that's what's being referred to when somebody says intellect. Intellect, will, and emotion, though, are not um, are not sufficient reasons to identify the image of God because animals seem to have will and emotions. They make decisions. They're not mechanical. They're not machines. And they also seem to display emotions. We can we can watch animals, especially pets. We see where they seem to be pacified, and other times they seem to be angry. So, I, I, emotion isn't. It may be a necessary part, but it's not a sufficient 
way of identifying the uh, the image of God in man. Intellect, it depends on what you mean by that. There does seem to be a high level of rational capability in which we can think in terms of symbolism. We can reflect on the nature of time. Uh, we can talk. We, there's a number of different things that seem to be very unique. Animals have thoughts, but animals don't seem to have thoughts about their thoughts. Okay, so there's a reflective element there. Um, and so I think it becomes then justified to kind of add that to the list. But notice this is all inductive. That is, we're looking at the text, and in most cases, except for the moral one that I just mentioned from Genesis 9, they, they, they were, we're trying to seize on those things that seem to be like God, but also part uh, like human at the same time, and not like anything else. And so I, I, that's I, the best way we can do that, figure out what the image of God is, is just do our best at making an inductive assessment. I personally wouldn't be comfortable with intellect, will, and emotion, because it's clear that other creatures, sentient creatures, who uh, are not made the image of God, have emotion and exercise acts of will, even if on a very simple level. And uh, But the intellect, you know, the kind of unique, set-apart intellect that humans have, and that some people call it a rational nature, and it makes us capable of introspection and things like that, I think that would be also a characteristic. To me, the key is not that we can itemize all the features. The key is that having the image of God is something all humans have, and it's what makes them valuable and makes them uh, morally obliged to each other. So that don't you think it also has the the uh, characteristic of giving us the ability to relate to God, being personal yes. beings, being made in His image, means that somehow we can connect with Him in a way that other creatures can't. Yes, I, I think you're absolutely right on that. I do write about that in the story of reality, but I forgot to mention it. Yeah, it allows us to have a a uh, an intimacy or relationship or a friendship with God that, that other creatures can't have. And by the way, this is fairly easy to understand. We can have relationships with our pets, but it's totally different than our relationship with our children and with our spouses, right? It's a, it's a whole, it's a magnitude. It's not just a magnitude. It's not a quantity difference. It's a quality difference. It's an entirely different sort of thing. And so I think that's a, that would be a, a fair uh, way of characterizing the image of God. And one other thing, keep in mind that many things that are part of functioning human beings are capacities that we carry in our souls, so to speak, that bear the image of God. And these capacities may be functional and may not be functional. So we have the capacity for a certain kind of rational activity. But a, a newborn child isn't it doesn't have that capacity realized. There has to be a, a development of the of the brain and other parts of the body for these characteristics of the soul to be expressed through. They're there. They are capacities that are innate to humans, but the capacities, and sometimes because of injury or shortcoming or whatever, of the physical body can't get expressed through the physical body. And that's why you right, can have... like in the case of uh, people who have had traumatic brain injuries or yes. who are undergoing dementia. That's uh, right. Or have some other intellectual disability that maybe 
is affecting their ability to to connect with the outside world. Correct. And keep in mind, the image of God is something that is innate and intrinsic to being human. Humans are qua human in the capacity of being human, also in the image of God. So it's it's built into the warp and woof of our humanity. It's not a quality that's added on that can be then taken away. And um, it, this entails that humans manifest a, a variety of different capacities, or they have native to them capacities that may not always be expressed for some reason. But as humans, there is still this native capacity. So they retain their value because they're made the image of God, which entails a lot of these capacities, even if the capacities are not realized, actualized yet for whatever reason. They haven't grown enough, they're not old enough, or maybe they're injured, or maybe they're too old. And so these capacities, because of degradation of the brain, the brain doesn't serve to uh, be capable of expressing these capacities like they used to. But they're still human beings made the image of God and valuable as such. Yeah. And I think, too, my wife and I have a, a son who was who is uh, autistic. And when he was younger, he had that uh, um, limitation. And we thought, can God make a, someone who lacks that ability to connect with him. Yeah, yeah. Thankfully, thankfully he can. Yeah, well, that's great. Uh, I'm glad for that. Uh, We're at the end of our show here, uh, Ramey. It's so nice to talk with you again. Hope that what I said was uh, was helpful. All right. All the best to you. Greg Kokel here for Stand a Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye.